We are working through this present time. Let's begin our service, blending our hearts together with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we do submit ourselves to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We ask that every word that is spoken would be clear. We ask that every word that is heard would be clear. We ask that our hearts would be open to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Give us your presence and give us changed lives today as a result. And we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're on number eight. I want to talk to you about um, the idea of generations. Generations. Um, I want to go ahead and give you three or four clarifications so I won't have to do it at every point all along the text. I want you to understand some things. Um, if, if I don't do this, it might be easy to misunderstand the application. Uh, number one, when I'm talking about generations, I'm not talking necessarily about a father, son, grandson, or daughter. Um, those are generations, and the story in the Bible is a story of three generations like that, of a grandfather, a father, and a son. But um, generations that I'm speaking of today can occur from the perspective of age, or it could occur from the perspective of experience. I also need to say that um, I'm going to ask you today to decide which generation you are and see how well we are responding to our generational call. But I also understand that you may be overlapping and there may be different areas in your life where you'd say, well, I'm a founder generation, or you might say I'm an expanding generation. Um, I understand that. This story in the Bible is not an allegory. When I talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is not, in my opinion, a, prophet, a prophecy of the church uh, uh, as such. Neither do I think it is an allegorical story that we can draw things from. But I do think we can make some pretty strong observations. That's the difference between allegory and, and observation or application. An allegory says this story means this. But uh, typology, we can say this story means this. Uh, you know, so, something in the Old Testament can be a type or foreshadowing of something in the New Testament, but, but it's not allegory. It's, uh, it's, that's foreshadowing, and that's typology, and that's a little bit different. But I think whether we're reading from the Old Testament or New Testament, we need to understand that we can make observations, and we can look at some principles. So what I want to talk to you about today are principles. There are three generations that we want to talk about. There is the generation that we would call the founding generation. There's the generation that we would call the stabilizing generation. 
And then there's a generation that we would call the expanding generation. Now, this is pretty easy to understand. When we talk about a founding generation, we're talking about the person or group of people that were instrumental in getting something started. We talk about our founding fathers and the establishing of our nation. Um, the men we're going to talk about today, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were considered the patriarchs or the founders of Israel. In fact, Abraham's called the, the father of the faithful. Um, so there are churches, there are times in your life, there are times in your ministry when you might say, I'm part of a founding generation. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. Or you may be part of a stabilizing generation. The, the ministry, the work, the whatever, the church has already been founded, but you are like a second generation that comes in. The foundation has been laid, but you are part of a generation that is stabilizing, that is clarifying. Paul would put it this way. He said, I planted, but Apollos watered. In other words, Apollos made what I planted grow, changing metaphors there. Um, that's the stabilizing generation. But after a stabilizing generation, the founding is secure, the stabilizing has um, systematized it, structured it. There's a generation of expanding where um, you reach out and you become more than you are. So you and I may be founders, we may be stabilizers, or we may be expanders, or you may be different things in different areas of life. What I want to do is talk about some principles. And when I talk about generations, I want you to understand two things are very important. You need to understand your walk with the Lord is not just you. Uh, I've often said, unless there's a translation I don't know about, the word saint in the New Testament does not exist. It's always saints. It's always plural. We are one another. We are, no one lives to himself. No one dies to themselves. We are inextricably linked together. Uh, we are generations. But I also want you to understand that um, there is a principle that tends to follow generations. And we see it in the foundation of Israel, the foundation of our faith. There are tendencies that are tendencies of decline. My pastor used to say Christianity is being a Christian is like riding a bicycle. You can coast for a while, but if you stop pedaling, you fall off. Now, he wasn't trying to make deep theological implications that if you have a dry spell, you're going to hell. He was just saying that Christians keep moving. And if you don't, your, your progress will decline and you'll find yourself falling over and having to restart and regroup. So I hope I've made that clear so I don't have to clarify every statement I'm making or qualify it. Um, not that you are deficient in any way. I just, it, it, not at all. It's just that I'm going to tell a story that's not a perfect analogy, but it is a principle that I think we need to be warned about. So um, generations, Joseph, we're going to start in Genesis 50. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land 
to the land he promised on oath to whom? To Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, this is very important that Genesis is ending this way because Genesis began, the first 11 chapters covered great spans of time. We don't know exactly how many years it took. We have some genealogies, but we don't know about some gaps between this activity and that activity. But it goes from creation to the expanding of the human race to the flood. Um, It's this great sweep of history. But then in chapter 12, the pace of Genesis slows down. And for the most part, we are told in detail the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Joseph is included in that as one of the sons of Jacob, but he's, he's not considered a patriarch like the other three are. So Joseph said to his brothers, and then we just read it, we go to Exodus. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. A few chapters later, I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land. The Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Loved ones, I want you to know that all three of them were in the providential line and care of God. All three of them, their life would be considered a success and a blessing. All three of them were instruments of God used to move Israel from point A eventually to point Z. But not all of their lives were the same. Their relationship with the Lord was not the same. Oh, I believe we call all of them righteous. I believe we call all of them saved. But the way they lived it out uh, presented a, a... presents a unique challenge to us. Now, let's look at a couple of starting points and then we're going to jump right into this. Um, First of all, God thinks in generational terms as well as in terms of individuality. We love to say, and it is absolutely 1,000, 1 million, 1 Brazilian percent true, Uh, And that is that Jesus loved each of us so much that if we were the only one that fell, he would die for us. I believe that. But, uh, you know, we say things like, if any man hear my voice, you know, recounting the words of Jesus, he said, if any one of you will hear, I will come in. Uh, It's appointed unto each man to die once. And after this, the judgment. Um, Every man we talked about a couple of weeks ago, will receive his own reward. And the New Testament is full of one another's. But there are also scriptures like the second commandment where God, number one, God told us that we're not to have any other gods before us. And number two, we're not to make any graven images. He said, I will, I will renounce my care for those that serve other gods. Uh, visiting the iniquity of the generation guilty to the third and fourth generation. Um, But he said to those that will follow me, I will bless thousands of generations. So God wants to bless generations. When Paul was in jail in Philippi, he and Silas 
were asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And he was told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and your house. That wasn't saying that if a parent is saved that everybody in the house is automatically saved. But he was saying God's promise is that he'll not only touch your life, but he's willing to bless households. He'll, he'll, he'll bring uh, everyone in. Now, the second thing that I want us to understand is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob give us insight into the way that we are to seek for our inheritance and our blessing of the Lord. Uh, let me give you just a little more definition and then we'll get into the heart of this. Abraham was what we call first generation. Now, this is what's characteristic of first generation for our purposes, talking about spiritual generations. The first generation, you look at Abraham, everything he got, he got from God. There was nothing handed to him from his parents or from organized religion. Uh, and by the way, let me just say this um, for the sake of anthropology. The worship of God didn't evolve and develop and kind of find a little structure with Abraham. Uh, what we see is not religion evolving. What we see is religion devolving. Man went from walking in the garden. Man went from the purity of worship in the house of Noah. Men devolved from that. And when we see Abraham, he is the product of a city, of a culture that had walked away from God and had lost knowledge of God, and God is bringing him back, okay? So everything he got, he didn't get in Sunday school. He didn't get from his parents. His father was an idol maker. His family was absolute pagans. But God began to speak to Abraham, and everything Abraham got, he got from the Lord. The key words to Abraham's life can be summed up this way, separate and search. Separate from your family, separate from your city, separate from your culture, and then search. The Hebrew says he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. And every time he met God or every time there was a turning point in his life, Abraham built an altar and those altars were places of such significance. You know, when Jacob, uh, a couple of generations later, would run after lying to his father and fleeing from his angry brother, he stopped at a place called Bethel, made his head of the rocks there. And that was the first place that Abraham, uh, on his journey, made an altar. He built an altar in Bethel. I've often wondered if the rock that Jacob would later lay his head on was one of the rocks that was part of that altar that Abraham built. And he had a dream in the night, a vision of angels ascending and descending on a staircase. King James says ladder. And I wondered, you know, just in elementary school, how do they, how do they get up and go down with, you know, on a ladder? But it, the word was really a staircase. He said angels, the message was angels, attend to my people. Angels come and go to do the business in the protection of the Father. Jacob woke up and said, I, he said, God is in this place and I didn't even know it. And most of us that are following Jesus because of our parents came to a place where we discovered God for ourselves and they would, our parents or our grandparents had always been there and God had always been there. And then all of a sudden we discover God. We discover God 
and we realize that our parents had it right, our grandparents had it right, our great uncle had it right, or whatever it is. God was in this place, and I didn't even know it. I want to tell you, Abraham learned that even if you were on a quest for God yourself, when you make a breakthrough, when you make an act of, of dedication, when you make a discovery, God keeps his promise that he made in the giving of the commandments and it will bless generation after generation after generation. Your children will meet God in places that you never dreamed of because of the altar that you built. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Lee, separate and search, separate and search. My, uh, the college of my Bible school that I went to Dr. Homer, he preached a series on the life of Abraham, and he said, this is what I learned about Abraham. He said, Abraham went from place to place, pitching tents and building altars. He said, and you students, you men and women, are going to have to decide if you're going to build altars or build tents. We are in a generation that more and more, he said, is pitching altars and building tents. And he said, we need to learn like Abraham, this world is not our home. We're just passing through. That's the kind of person I'm talking about when I say a founder generation. When I talk about the second generation or the, the generation um, of, of stabilizing, we're talking about Isaac. Isaac was the second generation. Now, let me tell you something that's generally true about second generation men and women of God. They're men and women of God, but everything they got, they got by inheritance. It might be the building they got. It might be the credibility that they got. It might be the fruit of the spirits moving that they got. They are blessed. They believe they are the first fruits of the founders. But second generations have to find God for themselves. They have to learn that God has no stepchildren and God has no grandchildren. All of us that come to him are his children, his children. Not that there's anything wrong with stepchildren, not that there's anything wrong with grandchildren. No, I mean, they're the cream of the crop, grandchildren are, of course. They have all the perfection that our children lack. No, I'm, I'm kidding. My, most of my kids are in here today. They know I'm kidding, although they would probably say, no, he's, he means it. But <laughs> See, Isaac had it made. What a phenomenal promise. But God went to great lengths to assure that Isaac got the full inheritance. His promise was as real and full and his destiny as, as intentional as the promise to his father. But the way Abraham handled it was one thing. The way Isaac handled it was something else. Abraham pressed in and got everything for himself. Abraham understood the importance of altars. Isaac had to be pushed by God and moved by God or he would have just floated through life saying, well, my daddy gave me this. My mama gave me this. And the second generation is not necessarily a generation of defection. It's not necessarily a generation of heresy, but the second generation can be a generation of ease that sets up the defection of the third generation. 
let me talk, uh, explain to you what I'm talking about. Jacob was the third generation. Now, Jacob is one of my favorite characters just because I, I, I've, I've looked at his life and I'm fairly well convinced that his last name was probably Chitty. Um, there are so many mistakes Jacob made that I, I understand. Yeah, I understand. I understand because I've made some of the same mistakes. Jacob is one of us, you know. Uh, but the thing about Jacob, even though God, God worked in ways, and not because of Jacob's faith, sometimes, sometimes he did, but sometimes God worked for Jacob in spite of his lack of faith. You see, God did for Abraham generally what he did because of his faith. That's why he's called the father of the faithful. By the time we get to Jacob, God's saying, I'm going to keep my promise in spite of the way you're living. I'm going to keep rounding you. He's like he's trying to herd, uh, you know, cattle into the corral. God said, I'm going to get you there, Jacob. I'm going to get you there. Some cows can be led gently with a halter. Others have to be tied to the, to the bumper of a pickup and dragged all the way to the barn. But God says, I'll get you there. Um, much of what Jacob obtained, when you read from, the, from his birthright, to his days with Laban, much of what he obtained was by manipulation. He was born and they called him a grabber. That's the, what his name meant, a grabber, because when his twin brother came out first, uh, he grabbed hold of his heel and said, you, you may think you're first, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to change this. And it was so obvious, it was so unique that they said, uh, um, you know, this, this guy's a trickster. He's a manipulator. So we'll call him uh, uh, twister or trickster or grabber. And he was a grabber, a manipulator. Jacob would even misrepresent the truth to get what he wanted. The end justifies the means was what was his way of thinking. I can think of no other man of such destiny and favor whose life was the story of God trying to herd him back in line all the days of his life. But God was determined to bring him to a place of spiritual intimacy and fruitfulness that he intended. Uh, you say, well, you know, what was it? You know, God just chose him. Well, that's the battle between Calvinism and Arminianism and all the variants in between. Uh, I think Calvinism greatly underestimates the importance of the choice that a man makes. I think Arminianism greatly underestimates the power of God's choice and God's commitment to the choice. Now, we know that the proper doctrine is Chittianism, which I don't have time to elaborate today. But I want to tell you, there's a dance in all of our lives between God's choosing and our reaction between God's reaction and our choosing. And, uh, and, and, and this thing called free will is too big for Calvinism. It's too big for Arminianism. And um, you're just going to have to trust I'm right till we get to the other side and Jesus confirms it. But uh, there's a passage that, you know, argues in favor of God's choice. God said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And if you're from one mindset, that sounds like God is saying, hey, I've chosen Jacob to inherit. 
I've chosen Esau to go to hell. Um, and if you believe in double predestination, that's, that's what you believe. Some are predestined to go to heaven. Some are predestined to go to hell. And I don't think that's a biblical posture. Um, I do think that everyone that accepts Jesus is predestined for heaven. Uh, in other words, he says, I'll get you there. But the choices of Esau and Jacob also played into this. Esau in the New Testament was called a profane man. And profane means to not put in its proper place things regarding to God. If you use the Lord's name in vain, it's called profanity, profanity. And Esau was the kind of fellow, not that he was doomed from the beginning to not be chosen, but Esau was the kind of man that his choices showed that things that were important. Who trades their birthright for a can of Hormel's chili? Uh, no, he was always making the wrong choice. In fact, but I got to be honest with you. If I was living in that day, I would probably go to the steakhouse with Esau long time before I'd go with Jacob. I, Esau is a likable guy. And, and he, had, he had a... Uh, a father that favored him and a mother that favored his brother. And you look at Esau, his life is a life always trying to somehow get the approval of his parents. He was done wrong by his brother. And when he has a chance to get even with his brother, he tells Jacob, keep what you've got. I've got everything that I need. He was a gregarious, fun-loving kind of guy, except for this. He paid no attention to the things of God. But Jacob, you say, oh, Jacob, he was, a, he was a piece of work. He was a piece of work that at the end of the day kept coming back to God. I mean, I wouldn't have trusted him to be my accountant. I wouldn't have wanted him to be my lawyer. I don't know that I'd want him to be my neighbor. But to his credit, this is not an excuse for his manipulation, but in the end, he kept coming back to God. He... he Every time God encountered him, he made a step in the right direction, though he didn't turn as fully as he needed to. You say, well, I just, I don't, I don't know why God chose him. Same reason he chose us. Most of us are the same way. Um, but God committed to this man that kept turning to him. Now, I believe God's intent is for godly generations to increase and ascend. Think of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be mathematically a double portion, but I believe God's plan is for wherever we are, for our children to know more. Um, you see, when we say we want our ceiling to be the floor of our children, it means us on our best days, us with our greatest revelation, us with our greatest ministry, we want that to be where our children start. But we also know that our children can't just start where we left off. They have to travel the same path we did. And we've opened a way for them to get here quicker than we did, but they've still got to travel the path. Well, this is, this is amazing, but let's just, uh, I, I, let me put it to you this way. The natural tendency of the flesh is atrophy. It's to put forth less and less effort to achieve more and more glory. 
It's the tendency of the flesh is to seek the blessing of an earlier generation. And before long, if we slip into passivity in order to keep what we had before, we will end up resorting to manipulation, intimidation, domination, or compromise. Let me give you an example before we kind of start getting ready to land the plane. The Pharisees are a good example. By the time we get to the New Testament, the Pharisees are generally, not all of them, but generally are the bad guys. They're seen in a negative light. They're seen as legalism instead of a path to God. Generally speaking, now they were better than the Sadducees, but uh, when we, nobody seems to get excited about Pharisee Sunday. Nobody would buy a book, you know, the 10 most famous Pharisees, probably, probably. No offense to present day Pharisees. I know there are some, but we tend to, in the New Testament, it does not put Pharisees in a very favorable light. They were behind the move to make the, the words of men the same as the words of God. They were behind the move to make their uh, fence laws as powerful as God's laws. And because of the Pharisees, the 614 laws of Moses had morphed into over 6,000 laws because they kept adding and kept adding and kept adding. And Jesus said, you are in a sad place. One of the most serious chapters of the New Testament is in Matthew where Jesus says all those woes, woe to you. He was talking to the Pharisees. And one of the things he said is you've taken the commandments of men and made them equal to the commandments of God. And we say, boy, I don't want to be a Pharisee. But do you know that the Pharisees, their name means separated ones. The Pharisees, are you ready for this? The Pharisees began as a revival movement. They began as a revival movement. Call them the Toronto Pharisees or the Brownsville Pharisees. And I believe in Toronto and Brownsville. That's probably not a good way to express it. But I meant they began by having a revival in their midst where they said, we are going to be loyal to God. We're going to be loyal to his law. But separateness, by the time we get about two or three generations away from the founding, separateness turned to self-righteousness. And that's the principle I want to talk about with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We can begin individually. We can begin as a church. We can begin as a denomination. We can begin as a nation with a commitment to righteousness. We can begin as a generation of founders. But if we're not careful, we will get lazy and we will become a generation of stabilizers and, and we mistake stabilizing to mean we don't have to do anything. And if we don't catch it then, the probability, the probability is that we will turn into people that believe in the core values, but it resort to manipulation and the flesh to fulfill it. Let's take these three guys and make it a little plainer. Abraham, was the pioneering generation. He was called the father of the faithful. Abraham teaches us and Abraham learned that intimacy with God was absolutely essential. Almost everything he experienced was a new thing. 
Now, we have no aversion to new things. Whenever we get tired of something, we say, God, give us a new thing. God, give us a new song. You know, this is what God's doing here. This is what God's doing now. Um, I've heard... I've heard revivalists in these days talk about the New Testament using the phrase present truth. And what they're saying is that the last generation's truth is is outdated. Now there's a present truth. There's a new truth. And that's not what that phrase present truth means at all. It It had a reference to the gospel, not to generational excitements. Well, that went over big. But I want to tell you what, what I don't mean by new thing. See, we've got to find the balance between Isaiah and Jeremiah. Both were prophets of God. Both were major prophets of God. And I want to tell you, we're right now seeing so many people mistake a shortcut as a new thing. They, they, they don't want to pay the price that the founding generation paid for intimacy with God. They don't want to go through the trials and the tests that the founder generation went through um, to to learn God and to find intimacy with God. So they have found shortcuts of the flesh and they call it God is doing a new thing. Now, I believe God does new things and when he does new things, we ought to rejoice and we ought not be afraid of new things. Uh, Mary is a good example of that. Mary... You know, we say, oh, of course, it's, it's not that big a deal to believe in the virgin birth. God can do anything. We, we believe God can do anything. And in conservative churches like ours, the virgin birth is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But we don't have any trouble believing it. That's what God did. It's not, you know, why doesn't the world believe in the virgin birth? Just put yourself in Mary's place where that had never happened before. She didn't have the gospel accounts. You say, well, yeah, but in Isaiah, it says the virgin will conceive. You read that, that was about to get a new application by the Holy Spirit. That was not an indicator that Mary was going to be giving birth to a child without having relations. No, it was brand new. And I want to tell you, I pray that everything God does that's new, may I have the response of Mary where it says, be it unto me according to the word of the Lord. But she knew what it was to really have a new thing and the new thing cost her. She was called a harlot by somebody the rest of her life. She was called um, uh, um, an adulteress the rest of her life by one group or another, just as her husband Joseph was. New things aren't shortcuts. New things will cost us dearly. And that's why you have Isaiah on one hand. Well, you're looking this way. Isaiah on one hand. Well, Hebrew goes from right to left. You have Isaiah on one hand where he says, I am going to do a new thing. Why are you amazed by that? Why are you so unwilling to embrace the new thing? And then you have Jeremiah who says to a nation that was about to fall prey to Babylon, he says, don't you understand that the important thing is for you to follow the ancient paths? for you to go back to the roots that you've received. And loved ones, they had an understanding that many people today don't have. There is a dynamic of new and there's a dynamic of old that we must embrace. 
we must um, understand that when God does a new thing, it's a very costly thing. It's not just something to raise our chillometer. It's not something to just give us goosebumps. It is a heavy-duty responsibility to embrace a new thing. And I want you to understand the only way you can embrace a new thing is to be anchored in the old thing so that you have perception and that you have discernment and that you have wisdom and that you have a solid base. If not, you'll be one of those that are blown about by every wind of doctrine. Abraham had unheard of propositions put before him. And you know what it meant? It meant that Abraham had to come to the place of an utter dependence on God that could not be attributed to the natural mind. You, you think about Abraham. Why in the world would God wait until Abraham is 100 years old and his wife is 90 years old before fulfilling the promise they were already on the border when they got the promise 25 years earlier. Why did God wait? Because sometimes, hear me loved ones, sometimes God will wait until we have no choice but to be utterly dependent on him. It's not cruelty. It's not cruelty. It's his wisdom. Uh, you know, why would God violate sound business principles? to make Abraham the wealthiest man in the land. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, whenever his nephew Lot, who was also righteous, the Bible describes him as righteous, but there was a world of difference between Lot and Abraham, uh, ethically and morally. Um, if, if for those of you that may be new Christians, Lot was Abraham's nephew that went with him on the journey to discover the inheritance of God. And there started to be conflict between their shepherds and their herdsmen. And Lot realized the land's not big enough for these two great flocks. So he went to his nephew and said, Lot, listen, family's more important than business. You choose, we're going to have to separate. You choose which way you want to go. If you want to go that way, I'll go this way. If you want to go this way, I'll go that way. And, and Abraham, why? There's no reason for Abraham to do that. He should have been honored as the elder. He should have understood that this was a good business move. This was a bad business move. But he gave it, the choice that is, to Lot. And Lot showed his character. Lot, you would have thought that Lot would have said, Oh, uncle, uncle, uh, no, the promise was to you. I'm along for the ride. You go the direction you want to go. And I believe God will carry me along in the blessing. And I believe God would have. You would have hoped he would have said, Oh, uncle. I mean, he would have said this more graciously. But he said, Uncle, you're an old man. You don't need to worry with starting over. I, I'm young. I'll start over. You take the well-watered plains where there's already pasture land and you already see the water. You go there. I'm younger. I've got more time. I can, I, I can go this way. But he didn't do that. Lot was a man that was called righteous, but he did not think in terms of trusting God. He thought in terms of his business skill. He thought in terms of the Wall Street Journal. He thought in terms of what he learned when he got his MBA. 
Everything says, I need to do this. But Abraham was put into a position where he essentially, in a lot of ways, was starting over. But out of it, he learned to depend upon God. And when he finally had his son Isaac with his wife Sarah, and God spoke to him after more than a decade, God said, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him to me. That seems so ludicrous. It seems so crazy. God, the God that I've learned doesn't do that. He doesn't require that. But sometimes God will tell you to do something that you really don't understand because he is about to give you understanding of something far greater. Because he went on a three-day journey and was prepared to sacrifice his son. We don't know this from the Old Testament story. We learn it from the New Testament story. See, on that three-day journey to sacrifice his son, the New Testament says that Abraham had another revelation. He came to the point where he said, God has told me that my seed will progress through Isaac, that it'll fill the world and through him shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He doesn't have any seed. He's just a teenage boy. So if I take his life, this is what Abraham realized. He said, if I take his life, then that means only one thing. God must raise him from the dead. So by the time he got from point A to point Z, he had a new discovery of God that God can be depended on so much that if God needed to raise Isaac from death, he would do it to keep his promise. That's the founder generation. That's the generation that says, like Job, though he slay me, I will trust him. You say, yeah, but God, God just doesn't do things the way he ought to do them. I mean, let Lazarus be in the grave for four days. I mean, decay had set in. I tell you, there are probably two or three reasons Jesus waited four days. We know the delay was intentional. And I think it had something to do with the faith of Mary and Martha and the other people. But I tell you what I think it was really about. The rabbis taught, not biblical, but they taught it and the people believed it, that the human spirit stays around the dead body for three days. And then at the fourth day, it goes to the afterlife. So if Jesus had raised him on the first day or the second day or the third day, they would have just said, well, Lazarus was just staying close and it wasn't too big a deal for Jesus to just coax him back into his body. But Jesus waited till all hope was gone. And loved ones, sometimes I know it. I don't know it at the time or even if I know it, I don't like it. I grunt and grumble and complain, but sometimes the Lord will take us to a place where we look at the, at the statistics, we look at the numbers, we look at the doctor's report, we look at whatever we look at, and what we say is that it's too late, it's too little, it's, you know, God can, but he won't. And God wants us to get to the point where all we can do is trust in him. Gee, so pastor, you're saying if I'll just have faith, all of my problems will work out? No, no. Sometimes you'll have faith. Sometimes you'll believe with all your heart God's going to do something and you still get thrown in the fire. But I can promise you this, Jesus shows up in the fire. Though he slay me, I will trust him. I know God can, I believe God will, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to live right. 
that's a tough place, but that's where founders live, okay? Now, Isaac was the second generation. You guys with me, okay? You don't want to run out to your car in this anyway. This was the stabilizing generation. Now, stabilizing is good because so many times when God does something fresh and new, it's, there's life everywhere, but it's like, a, it's like you just had quintuplets. You know, there's life, but when they start walking around, you've got to have some rules. You've got to have some stabilizing, you know, uh, it, it, what begins as joy unspeakable and full of glory uh, soon becomes pretty gnarly unless you can bring stabilization and structure to the family. And that's true of a walk with God. It's true of a church. So Isaac was a child of promise. He was groomed for success. I don't know what Abraham taught him and didn't teach him. I know that Isaac heard the stories, but I don't know what he was taught and the way he was taught. I don't know. But there was an astounding inheritance that favored peace. Now you've got a man that's everything he's getting is from God. And now you've got a man that it's handed to him on a platter. And there's nothing wrong with being a, a generation of peace. Uh, David was a generation of war and he did war doing the will of God. I don't think God was saying that, David, you can't build my temple because you were a bad guy. You did war. I think God was simply saying, your assignment was war. Your assignment was this, but I need a man of peace to build the temple. I, I don't think it was good versus bad. I think it was purpose versus purpose. And God had Abraham fighting these battles it, 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 sometimes literally, and, and, and waging war in the spirit to learn God. And now Isaac has everything given to him in the Sunday school class. Now he learns everything and he, he can say, oh, I can bear witness. Yeah, that's true. My daddy told me that. But Isaac had this problem. He tried to live in the blessing of God without learning the path of blessing, in my opinion. He failed to learn from some of his father's mistakes. He lied about his wife being uh, his sister, just like his father did. Uh, but he not only didn't learn from his father's mistakes, Isaac failed to learn from some of his father's successes. He had to learn about altars. He didn't seem to understand that there's a time to contend for your inheritance. You see, um, the Bible tells us that Isaac went through this thing of where he would dig a well or, or uncover the well of his father uh, because Isaac or, or Je um, Abraham not only built altars, but he dug wells. And almost every time he did that, the enemy would come in and fill in the well or steal it from him. And what he would do is just say, well, I don't want any trouble. I'll move on. And he just did well after well after well. But he came to a place, and hear me, loved ones, you second generation, we second generation, we've got to learn that even though we don't want trouble, we've been called into a season of peace. There are times you've got to do what Isaac did. You've got to take back the wells of your father's and he did something else. He called the wells by the names his father called them. He had the inheritance, and I'm not talking about physical fighting. I'm not talking about um, physical war. 
Uh, I'm not talking, there's no room for hate in the body of Christ. But there is a place where you have to contend for the promise of God. And there, ha there is a place where you have to redig what the founders dug. And you've got to redig it, calling it by what the founders called it. That's why the second generation has got to walk the path of the altar. They've got to walk the path of devotion to the Word of God. They've got to walk the path of sacrifice and of service and of responsibility. It's not enough to sit in inheritance. You've got to keep things going by digging into the sources that your fathers had and your mothers had. It has to happen. Let me tell you this about Isaac. <coughs> One of the things that I think does more damage to a church or to a walk with God, to a ministry, is the idea of passivity. Passivity. Now, there's a time to wait. Be still and know that I am God. My, my verse for today is, I love the way CEV puts it, be calm and know that I'm in control. There are times we need to just be calm and know that God is in control. There are times that God will say, you just stand still, let me do it. You won't have to lift a weapon. I will cause your enemies to flee before you. And I'm thankful for every time that happens. But you know what? There are other times when the second generation has got to learn like the second generation of Israel did in, in that, that after they came out of Egypt. There are times that you've got to learn there are times you stand back and look, and there are times you march around the city. Yeah. And there are not only times that you march around the city, but there are times you shout. And there are not only times you shout, but there are times you go in with the sword and you take the spoils of war. You see, we've got to learn that God, um, and let me, let me put it to you this way with David. Saul received the same call that David did. Saul received the same anointing that David did. Saul had everything David did, but the reason David was successful and Saul did not even last out his life with the favor of the Lord is that Saul was never tested. He was never tested, but David went through uh, probably 10 at least or 12 years of testing after he was anointed after he was anointed. And we've got to understand that, loved ones, if we're second generation, we have to be tested. You say, well, my, I'm walking in an inheritance. I'm walking in a blessing. But you need to know how the inheritance was won. And you need to know how the inheritance is maintained. And that's why you've got to learn what made the founders great. You've got to learn what made them successful. There's a reason that successful Christians and successful churches do things. And you, the second generation, have to go to those roots and find out what it is. My mama, I've told you this story and we've just got so many new people, I'll tell it for them. My mom, uh, I guess that's why I love chickens. My mom, her responsibility on her granddaddy's farm was the chickens. It was my mom. I told you about when a fire swept through the pasture and mom found her favorite chicken, thought she was okay and, you know, kind of nudged her with her toe to get her moving and found out she was dead. And when she nudged her over, all of her chicks ran out from under her. 
And she learned what Jesus was talking about. He said, Hi, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you unto myself as a hen gathers her young, but you would not. And she said, I never forgot how the Lord gave himself for me, the way that mama hen sat there in that smoke and advancing fire to give her life for her, her chicks. She protected them. She said, I came across after that, she said, I came across some eggs that I knew from my calendar that I kept. It was time for these guys to hatch. And she said, I saw, I waited, and I saw one begin to peck out. And it was so hard. This hen was just trying her best to get out. And I thought, I love, you know, I love these chickens. In honor of their grandma chicken, I'm just going to help them out. There's no point in them doing all this work. No point in them having all this struggle. So she just peeled them all out and they were happy. And, but they all died. Every one of them died. And she said, it was then that my grandpa explained to me that for a chicken to live, it has to have the struggle of getting out of the egg itself. It has to go through that. And if they don't, they generally don't live. They generally don't live. It's not a hard and fast rule, but it's something that is generally true. And if you're a second generation loved one, you've got to move away from passivity and you've got to understand the Lord will drop things in your lap that make it look like he's forgotten his promise. But all he's wanting you to do is learn to contend for the promise. I, I want to tell you, passivity will destroy the vision of God in your life. I would go so far as to say the difference between churches that are highly successful and churches that are not highly successful is the level of passivity in the church. Pastors that are highly successful and not highly successful, generally speaking, it's a matter of passivity in the heart of that pastor. We don't live as though the world owes us something. We live as though we owe something to the world. We've got to keep moving forward. Jacob was the expanding generation. Guys, y'all are going to have to do better than this. And listen faster. Jacob is the expanding generation. Jacob is the time now where the family of Abraham is expanding. They, they grow to 70 or 75. Then by the time we hear from them in Exodus, they've grown to many scholars think it's as many as two and a half, three and a half million. It's a time of expanding. They're about to go out and get the land. But if you're like Jacob, the third generation, the successes of the past tend to make us think we don't need to walk in their path again. We think spiritual intimacy can re be reduced to confessions and formulas. Um, a church dignitary in England one time when the church was going through real apostasy, the church was in a high place. And this church dignitary, this high officer in the church, took a reformer through a church for a tour to prove to him that the church was doing better than the reformer said it was. We're fine. He showed him the statues. He showed him the silver and gold. He showed him the expensive artwork. And this is what the church official said. The church no longer has to say, silver and gold have I none. He's quoting Peter in the book of Acts. We don't have to say that anymore. We no longer have to say silver and gold have I none. But the reformer looked at him and said, that's true, but neither can she say, nevertheless, I give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And I want to caution those that are in 
the position to expand and opportunity seems to be out there before you in record proportion. Don't make the mistake of allowing fleshly shortcuts to be considered a new thing. Isaiah says, I'm going to do new things and they'll be costly and they'll be life-changing and they will reduce you to the point that you are totally dependent on God. But there's also the dynamic, Jeremiah says, walk in those ancient paths and remember why what was done was done. I want to tell you, third generation, if you're not careful, you'll be like Samson. You'll play games with the Holy Spirit and his gifts and anointing. And you run the risk of running into a place where God says no more. The Bible says that uh, Samson played games and played games and played games. And every time he'd come to himself, he'd rouse himself and the Spirit of God would come upon him again. And when Delilah finally broke through his secret, and she shaved his head. The Bible says this didn't alarm him. He got up and shook himself as before, but he did not know that the spirit was no longer with him. I want to tell you the most frightening thing for a third generation is to think that I'll just keep shaking myself and it doesn't work and you don't even understand you don't even understand that the Spirit has lifted His hand off of you. So you think if I can just deconstruct the story of Jesus and get a new spin on it, things will come back. You think if I can disregard all the weakness of the previous generation, we can do it in a better way. But what you don't know is that the Spirit of God, in God's mercy, He has lifted His hand off of you. But the sad thing is that when God lifts his hands off the third generation, the, the expanders, they don't realize that they have produced a generation of children that do everything to keep the ministry alive. And like the sons of Jacob, the children of these ministries become more carnal than their father. Oh, Jacob blew it. God was bringing him back. But you look at his blessing of his sons. Some of the blessings of his sons were curses. See, he blamed them for their heartlessness. But loved ones, I want to tell you, the sons of Jacob saw him live his life in carnality and the strength of the flesh. They were just living the way Jacob's example had taught them. Now, how do, how do we wrap this up? What do we do with this? There are four things that I think are absolutely critical. Number one, and we'll call it, instead of Christian life lessons today, we'll call it holding to our roots. God often calls us to new places, new things, or new methods. But if he does, stay firmly tethered to your godly spiritual heritage. And if you don't have one, get one. Find somebody to identify with. And I want to tell you this, it's not dishonoring to recognize and appreciate an imperfect heritage or tradition. Why do we think we need to do away with the thing that brought us to Jesus? Because we see it's not perfect. None of us are perfect. No churches are perfect. No traditions are perfect. No denomination is perfect. No pastor is perfect. No fellowship is perfect. We need to be like the homeowner Jesus described who when he is pursuing the kingdom, he brings out of his household treasures old and new. Old and new. 
And if you choose to disregard something that God seemed to have used, before you change it, choose wisely. Be sure you're understanding what you're doing. Now, I know that some traditions, and I want you to understand this, require refinement, but they don't require abandonment. They require refinement, but they don't require abandonment. And Jacob is like a lot of Christians today. I'll just throw everything away, especially the hard things, and we'll make it streamlined and easy. And we'll call that shortcut a new thing, but it doesn't work. Here's the second life lesson. The pioneering generation, those that consider yourself Abrahams, have to take special care to explain to the next generation clearly about the dealings of God. A lot of times we older folks are disillusioned with the younger generation. And to the younger generation, I apologize. Uh, I, I'm so thankful for what God seems to be doing on college campuses right now. And I'm so thankful that he chose this generation to show himself to. Because every time someone begins to get old, we have a tendency to look at a younger generation and we think they just don't understand. Well, loved ones, they may not understand because we haven't taken time to explain. I, I'm, I'm so, I, I, this was a flaw in my church growing up. When I asked, why do we do this? Why does brother so-and-so dance? Why does sister so-and-so give a message in tongues? Why this? Why that? Why, why, do we, why do we get up and march around the church? Well, that's Jericho March, as though that would explain it to an elementary school kid. You know, and if you questioned, often it was, don't you question the Holy Ghost? The, that's an unforgivable sin is, is blaspheming the Holy Ghost. I wasn't blaspheming. I just wanted to know. I didn't want to not do it. I just wanted to know why. And I had to discover on my own where I wouldn't be judged for asking a question. Um, the reasons that the altar is important must be clearly articulated. The reason we believe in tongues must be clearly articulated. The reason we say some things happen when we pray that don't happen if we don't pray needs to be articulated. We shouldn't expect a generation to just understand everything unless we teach them. He, see, in the, even in the days of Moses, he says, put the scriptures on the walls of your home, over your doorposts, and then when you're out walking, when you're sitting around the table, talk about them. Explain them. The increase of legalism in Pentecostal churches, I believe, is due to a failure to articulate convictions. When I was in school in Springfield, that was the first seminary I went to. Bear with me. I, I, I know I'm not going to make it in 90 seconds. I know. But I'm worth it. So just, no, I, I'm, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I hope what I'm saying is worth it, though. Uh, I was in Springfield, and the retirement home for AG pastors was there next door to Central Bible College. And I... I was fascinated. I've always been fascinated with history. Most of the first generation of AG folks was gone. But there were a few back in the 70s. There were a few that were still alive and they were in that retirement home. And there were a lot of people that were second generation. And 
I would go and ask them, and I noticed there was a difference between first generation, second generation often. The second generation would say, I don't know, we're, we're compromising, we're doing, we're doing this, we wouldn't do earlier. And when I asked the first generation, I said, uh, what do you think has happened that caused us to compromise on so much? And he said, what do you mean compromise? And I said, well, now, you know, second generation said no movies, no bowling alleys. Membership card I filled out, and I, I mean, I, I, I went to a good church, but I had to be born again. I had to be f uh, full of the Spirit. Um, and number three, I had to stay away from worldly amusements. And I signed that I would not go to bowling alleys. I would not go to pool halls. I would not go to a ball game. I would not go to movie theater. I would not play dominoes. I would not play cards. I forget all the things. And, you know, I love Jesus. That's no problem. You know, I signed. And I said, well, like on my membership card. He said, we never said those things. And here's a first generation guy. I said, he said, we didn't teach those things were sin. I said, well, how? He said, I'll tell you how. He said, in the first generation, we were so afraid of grieving the Holy Spirit. We were so afraid of dishonoring Jesus that if we weren't sure something was okay, we didn't say it was a sin. We just said, we don't have to do that. We don't have to drink wine. We don't have to go to a movie picture. He said, in those days, it was such a new industry. We just didn't know if it was good or bad. We don't have to, and, and he said, ball games? He said, you got to remember back when Babe and those guys were playing, that was a rough place. Going to a baseball game was a rough place to go. And he said, we just did not want to grieve the Lord. Please hear me, loved ones. We did not want to grieve the Lord. So we didn't say it was a sin. We just said, we don't need it. We can lay it aside. We don't need it because we don't want there to be any questions. He said, but our children, we didn't explain that it was an act of love. We didn't explain what was behind it. So our children come along and they make it a law. Now, some of those laws are good. <laughs> some of those might have, the spirit behind it was good. But loved ones, that's the danger the second generation has if the first generation doesn't explain the faith fully, the second generation can fall into legalism. So if you consider yourself a pioneering generation, instead of just being disappointed with everybody younger than you, take time to model and explain why this, that, and the other is important. Here's number three, the stabilizing generation. This is Isaac. They have to embrace trials and testing as necessary to the maturing of their faith. I, I'm, I'm going to say this, and I know it's going to be controversial, but I'm, 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 that's not my goal. In fact, I don't want to talk about it. But I think the brand of Pentecostalism and the brand of Christianity that we saw develop in the 1970s is one of the most damaging brands of Pentecostalism and charismatic because we were taught in that era that if you have faith, you won't have trouble. And God wants you to have everything you want to have. Love ones, I want to tell you, God does not want you to have everything you want to have. You're not that smart. You're not that good. You're not that wise. 
I, sell, I have learned, and it's only taken me 68 years, I have learned to celebrate every time God says no. I have learned to celebrate every time God says no. It may be heartbreaking, it may be devastating, but I have, I have learned if I just give it time, He can redeem it. He can redeem it. Now, that doesn't mean we won't have heartache. That doesn't mean, you know, it's, I can't remember if I said this, this service or the other service. Um, you know, sometimes we're like the three Hebrew children. I know God is able, and I believe God's going to do it, and we still get thrown in the fire. I know that. But God is able to redeem everything. I'm not saying that you have some fatalistic view, but I am saying this. The for us to inherit what we've been given, we've got to understand we're going to have to fight some of those same battles that our mothers and fathers fought. We're going to have to go through some of those same trials. We learn obedience through the things that we suffer. Um, it's essential that we understand the journey and how we got here. Remember from Isaac, some battles must be fought. Some wells must be retaken and the name has to be changed from what our enemies call it to what our fathers called it. Here's the last thing. The expanding generation must be careful to never give credit to any other source except God. They must be careful to trust in the name of the Lord. They've got to remember the verse in the Old Testament that says some may trust in horses and some may trust in chariots. Now, you've got to understand what he's saying. God gave them horses and chariots. And sometimes you need a horse and a chariot. But that's not the issue. Horses and chariots are fine as long as that's not your trust. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Life in the flesh can never produce life in the spirit. There's a strong tendency in a third generation to rely on methods, schemes, and formulas. And Jacob had to learn through the encounter at Bethel where he saw the vision, Jacob had to learn in his dealings with Laban, who was a world-class trickster. Jacob had to learn as he wrestled with God there at the brook as he thought it was very possible that his life was about to end. Jacob's, Jacob had to learn that I can't manipulate God I've got to surrender. And it may mean I, he touches me and I never walk the same way again. But I want to tell you something. He wasn't called Israel, which means prince with God. He wasn't called Israel till he built an altar after that encounter. Okay. You remember Charles Dickens and Great Expectations? I love that book. It's the story of Pip and Magwitch and Estella and Miss Havisham. It is a great story, and if you've read it, I want to tell you now, it is an absolute heartbreaker. I read it in the 10th grade, and our class, some of the girls cried. Some of the guys thought, that ain't right, because it did not have a good ending. It did not have a good ending. And we found out as we got into our next reading assignment that there was an alternate ending written. Back in the 1800s, the publisher said, this is so depressing that they changed the ending. Well, I don't want to ruin it for you. They changed the ending to something that was more happy. And I, the teacher let us read that, and 
she said, who likes the sad ending? And oh, a couple of thugs lifted their hand. Who likes a happy ending? Me and the girls lifted our hands. Yeah. And she said, you're about to have a test on great expectations. And when you take the test, answer the questions based on the ending that you choose. She said, you won't always have this choice in life, but interpret and answer the test based on the conclusion that you choose. I just want to tell you something, loved ones. When we look at our life story, we've got an opportunity for our life to be reviewed based on a good ending or a bad ending. We have the choice. All of our sins can be put behind us and we can have the good ending instead of the bad ending. But it's going to be up to you and I to make that choice. You see, some of you in here, you say, oh, I, Pastor, I'm an, I'm an Abraham. I'm about to drop dead any day now. And I, I, can, I can say amen. Everything I've ever gotten, I've gotten from God. Praise God for Abraham's. Some of you are here and you say, well, I'm Isaac's. You know, my, my mom and daddy, my grandparents did this, that, and the other. And I've just kind of coasted on, the, on their blessing. And I realize I've got to go through my own testing. I've got to go through my trial. Some of you are saying, hey, I've been raised in a generation where we get it through gimmicks and we, we build our church by trashing other churches. We, we, we draw people by telling them they're stupid to go to this group over here. And Pastor, I, I, don't want, I want to learn the real mission and I want to become dependent on the Holy Spirit. You see, as we move forward, I believe we're going to see the greatest persecution the North American church has ever known. But I also believe we're going to see the greatest outpouring of the Spirit that the North American church has ever known. And you've got to decide how you're going to live through it. Are you going to be living in manipulation? Are you going to be living in finding God?